Welcome to the BodyWise podcast, focusing on the new Maudsley carer skills with me, Harriet Parsons, psychotherapist and training and development manager with BodyWise, and Jenny Langley, author of Caring for a Loved One with an Eating Disorder, the new Maudsley skills-based training manual. Each episode in this podcast series will focus on one particular aspect of the new Maudsley carer skills. We will explain the concept, talk through the ideas behind the skill and learn how that particular skill can benefit carers. Welcome to this very special episode where Jenny and I are joined by Gillian Todd. Gillian was a nurse at the Maudsley Hospital for 30 years and worked on the eating disorder ward with Dr. Janet Treasure for 17 of those. Jill was instrumental in developing the new Maudsley carer skills, and today we're going to talk to her about her experience. So Jenny, you're very welcome. Hi, Harry, it's great to be here. And Jill, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure having you with us. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be able to share these experiences with everybody. So Jill, maybe could you go back to the beginning of your time working on the eating disorder ward in the Maudsley and tell us about when you began working with Janet Treasure and the work you did on the ward. I'll I'll start just quickly a little bit before to mention Professor Gerald Russell. He was the outstanding professor in eating disorders at the Maudsley and I was lucky enough to be a student nurse under him and then a, a, um, a nurse, a trained nurse, a registered nurse with him. And I'd say between him and Janet, that's where I've learned most of my skills and mm-hmm. got my knowledge of eating disorders. Um, so just to quickly start, all the research that I knew about at the Institute of Psychiatry in the early days was done by family therapists about the younger patients, so not the adult patients that we were seeing. Um, And there was nothing for adult patients in terms of working with their carers. Mm -hmm. So when Janet and I um, took over the unit, Professor Russell retired, we wanted to get information from people's families and we had no family therapy model for working with the adult patients that we had on the ward. Mm-hmm. And we wanted also to, to find a way around dealing with issues of confidentiality. So we wanted to talk to the families, but we didn't want to tell them confidential information about their loved one who was on the ward with us. Okay. Um, and that's the thinking behind the carer skills workshops, but also Janet and I together had an attitude that we wouldn't give up on anybody. No so, matter what age they were. No matter what age, because at, at, in the early days we would take people, there were no um, wards for children and adolescents. So we would take people on our ward from 13 upwards until the law changed and they had to be 18. So no matter what age they were or the duration of their illness. Yeah, didn't matter. Usually people who came to the ward had been ill for a minimum of three years before they got to us. Most people had been ill for six or seven years. Okay. We didn't have a family therapist on the ward. We didn't have a model for working with families. So we started some CBT skills workshops, CBT-based skills workshops, Mm -hmm. With basically having two families 
and asking them to go through the chronology of how the illness was de developed in their family. And then we talk about what could that family do to change things. But it also, the penny dropped when Janet and I uh, went on a motivational interviewing workshop with Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick. And um, we were learning all these skills for how to help people with it, with any psychiatric illness, anything really, to change their behaviours. And we got back to the ward and we realised that we were sending people home to people who knew nothing about these skills, nothing at all, mm. and yet we were expecting them to manage at home without the, any help at all. And, um, you know, I, I was also a little bit tired of having this attitude that, oh, the parents or the family were doing something wrong and we weren't doing anything to alleviate that or help them or share any ideas with them. So um, that's was where we were coming from in terms of actually then the very first thing I did was set up a, a conference and we invited every parent in our service to come and we called it a carer's listening day. So basically we spent the whole day practicing listening skills. Wow. And we got such good feedback from people that we then slowly but surely moved into making a list of basic skills that we thought carers should have. And Janet was also able to appoint some PhD students to look at carers and how they um, felt about having an eating disorder in the house so that we garnered research information as well that we could put into the carer skills workshops that they became to be called that. So, Jill, can I ask you, was that when you developed the animal metaphors? Was it around the same time? So you, you saw the motivational interviewing and then did the animal metaphors kind of come from that thought process? I think they did. We I can't take um, all the credit for animal metaphors, but it is sort of it's sort of thing that suddenly pops into your head. Janet is very into animals and um, Gronje Smith was. Yeah with us as well she'd come to visit and she talked to us about her daughter and her experiences and I think she said this is this is like um which one is this is like an ostrich you know yeah. with your head, burying your head in the sand and then of course Janet developed the other animals together yeah. so there's an ostrich there's a kangaroo there's a rhinoceros and Jellyfish. Oh, jellyfish. I love the jellyfish. Yeah. And yeah. Janet always used to say to me, oh, well, you're a bit like a rhinoceros. I must say, I always felt like a hippopotamus. <laughs> What's the difference? What's the difference well, between a rhinoceros and a hippopotamus? Well, I think a rhinoceros charges in and tells you what to do. And I think a hippo sort of would like to do that, but just lies down in the mud. <laughs> And rolls around, I think. <laughs> gets, gets down there and dirty. And yeah. I love the concept of, um, so Pam McDonald, who's also part of our team, isn't she? So Pam McDonald said her, her daughter turned around to her once and said, well, mum, that was a moment when your rhinoceros horn was poking out through your dolphin blowhole. Which is great, isn't it? That's fantastic. Carers yeah. love that. When I tell them that, they go, oh, I feel like that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And of course, another penny dropped for me, because for ages, the animal metaphors always seemed like something to beat carers up with. Not yeah, all like this is wrong and this is yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And then I realised, putting my motivational interviewing hat on, that actually there are good things about each animal. Exactly. Yeah. Those things that you have to capitalise on. So what's good about kangaroo caring is that the people care. Um, yeah. What's good about a jellyfish is that their emotions, they wear their emotions on their sleeves. So they're in touch with their emotions, which is something that somebody with an eating disorder is not in touch with their emotions. So what's good about rhino care is that, um, you know, when something needs to be done, that person will go and do yeah. it, you know. And when you need to be quiet and listen and reflect, well, that's ostrich. That's the other side of ostrich. Exactly. Or just self-care, just taking time out. Yeah. 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 And the carers love that, Jill. They love that doing that exercise when you say, let's have a think about all these animal metaphors. And I always have your words in my ear, which is if it's working, carry on doing it. So if it's working being a kangaroo, if it's working being a rhino, then why would you think about changing? It's only when you feel stuck or you can feel that there's a disconnect with your loved one that you might then think about change. So, you know, I've seen obviously in the hundreds of thousands of carers I've I've had through the workshops is they love that exercise when we when we look at both sides. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's no judgment, is there? There's no kind of hint of criticism or judgment or right or wrong. Yeah. I like it in the workshops when we get to the dolphin yeah. and the St. Bernard and the herd of elephants and, and they spend a lot of energy trying to find out what's not so good about those animals. Yeah. 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 So it's being able to look at things from different perspectives. That's what we want to Absolutely. all the yeah. time to the people that we love, we care for, and the people we're trying to help is to broaden their horizons. It's about bigger picture thinking, and it's very important that we're able to do that. Jenny, at what point did you come into the picture of this? So I came in, so my son had anorexia in 2002, and there was none of this existed, or if it did, that it wasn't out there. So, you know, because I think it was the late 90s, it all kicked off, didn't it, Jill, in the, you know, the research started. But um, so I just had to work out, all, you know, I, I reflect back and I remember thinking, oh, so arguing with logic isn't working at the moment. I need to do something else. And, you know, um, and, and when he came home from the hospital, I can't just put him in my pouch because, so I wasn't thinking kangaroo rhino, but I, rem I can reflect back now and say, that would have been really helpful, but I kind of worked it out. Like I worked it out. I needed to get him back out there, even though he was only 12 years old. So after he got better, so his recovery journey was in full about two years. So not, you know, quite short in the overall scheme of things. Um, so the, by the time he was 14, um, he'd given me permission to write the first book, The Boys Get Anorexia 2 book, which was to raise awareness. It was a story of recovery. It was really cathartic to write it, you know, all that. And then at the same time, the lovely Veronica Kamerling in who, the London Carers Group, she introduced me. She said, you've got to meet um, Professor Janet Treasure and Jill Todd. And my life changed. So that would have been 2006, Jill, about 2005, 2006. Yeah, yeah about yeah. then. So, and, and that was when they would really started to do the research. So there, there was a whole team of PhD students, weren't there? So Liz and Becky and like, you know, there's been so many that have also come to the workshops, haven't they, Jill? But um, that there was a lovely, lovely team of, of PhD researchers. Um, and so I was just kind of swept up into, into all of this research. So I ended up, so I came to Jill's workshops 
um, to do the basic training. And I remember, remember, Jill, that time when you kind of looked to the sky and said, thank you, God, when I went, oh, I've got it now. I don't need to be perfect. Because I was one of those yes, but students. And I was saying, yes, but that sounds patronizing. Yes, but that wouldn't work because, because, because. And then I went, I get it. The pennies dropped. And Jill was just like, thank goodness. <laughs> and then from that day, Jill, we worked really well in tandem together, didn't we? So, yeah. yeah. So I was I was involved in the, the research with the adult patient, the research with the child and adolescent families. Um, there was a dad's piece of research. Remember, Jill, that we did. Um, so, you know, it, a lot of it was telephone coaching. Um, and so I remember finding it really hard to start with, to stick with the model, you know, to to get two or three reflections to every open question. Um, and of course, it was coded and, and Pam McDonald would be telling me, I haven't quite got this right, Jenny. But I got there in the end, didn't I, Jill? She did. Yeah. And, and honestly, it just changed my life. So I went from being a city stockbroker rhino <laughs> to this incredible dolphin <laughs> Bernard like creature. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. And Jill, mm-hmm. can I ask you, so when you started um, working with the carers of the patients that you were caring for, what were the kind of differences that you noticed about the work you were doing with your patients then? What what started to change? What changes did you notice? Well, what, what I realised, and I'm still realising, and I don't think we've put enough um, energy into finding this out, is that Patients need to learn the same skills as the carers. And often there was a kind of mix up of who who was the dolphin, who was the rhino. And carers would think we were talking about the the patient, not about them. Mm -hmm. So we've got to unpick that. And I think both things need to happen at the same time, that that especially long-term patients need to be helped to find an approach where they can reflect on their life and have a narrative approach to their life rather than being just told about food, weight and shape all the time. Yeah, absolutely. We- I, I wholeheartedly agree, Jill. You know, I've got loads and loads of carers in my network where the, the patients are in their 30s, 40s, even 50s. And, you know, it 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 just needs to be age adjusted, experience adjusted. We always talk about being experiential, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and what's so lovely about the model is because because it's so person-centered, you can weave aspects out of the model, whatever the age or duration of the illness, can't you? So, mm-hmm. but it's it's helping other people who are using the model to be able to understand that. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose a big part of the model is that um, it's for carers to focus on how they can make changes themselves based on the idea that the only person we can really change is ourselves. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you then think about um, people with eating disorders um, learning the same skills, the same would apply to them, mm-hmm. that the only person they can change is themselves. Mm-hmm. And by changing themselves, they're going to change their world and change their life and to kind of put energy into that rather than just food, weight and shape. Mm. And we and we can help them as counsellors. We can help them because we could help them to do thinking exercises about, say, for instance, um, if they've got an emotional regulation issue, then thinking about how did they get that? Is that something in the generations? Is that something they've learned at home? 
is that something that's um, in their environment that they've picked up? And how can they work on that? What experiments could they think of doing with our help mm. that, that can help them to, to think about changing or, or branching out a little bit more? Mm. And I think that's what we're asking carers to do, but it's quite difficult for them to do that because they want a quick fix. It's difficult. Yeah. But it, and it's not a quick fix, but they need to learn to do it so they can role model what the what their loved one needs to see and needs to emulate, really. Yeah, absolutely. And so much of that, Jill, is about quality of life, isn't it? So yeah. moving away from the focus on so the focus for a child or adolescent is obviously going to be on the refeeding to start with. You know, of course, we all understand that it's it's brutal, but we need to help families to be able to do that or they need to go into some sort of second or third line treatment. But for the for the carers of adults, whether they're parents or partners or siblings or friends, you know, um, or even the adult caring for themselves, isn't it? It's that thinking about what's the end game here? And the end game is I want to live my best life. Yeah. It's not I'm going to be I'm going to be focused on food, weight and shape for the rest of my life because that's my medicine or that's my treatment protocol. Mm-hmm. So it's really helping them to expand their own horizon, isn't it? To be thinking yeah. Where am I going with this? Do we call it recovery? Do we call it discovery? Do we call it a journey? What do we call it? Um, and recovery is not always applicable to the some of the adult patients, is it? It's more of a discovery, finding what their way is. Well, recovery c- can be experienced as a very judgmental. Exactly. Absolutely. Supposed to happen, and um, it's not helping the person to be reflective yeah. or insightful. Um, it's it's a judgment, and we we get stuck on the that detail rather than exactly. And also, if somebody has had an eating disorder, you know, since they were a teen, and now they're an adult, you know, they haven't had, they haven't, they haven't gone through developmentally that kind of yeah. teenager twenties. So that so the idea of recovery, and you know, going back to how they were before that's yeah. not possible they can't go back and be 16 again exactly yeah out you know thinking well what will this person's life look like if it was expanded into more areas that aren't eating disorder areas you know what what do they enjoy what are they interested in how can they start to fill up their life with things other than food and eating and exercise and all of that stuff so, yeah, so we're really talking about, um, you know, ways of supporting adults then who might have had an eating disorder for a longer time than the teenagers. And I think thinking about it, it, it's not the person with the problem in the family. It's everybody needs to think differently about how have we all as a family relation got here what have been the events for us that have led us to respond in this way rather than that way? How have I learned to eat? How have I dealt with my own body dissatisfaction? What genetics do I bring to this soup? Mm-hmm. Um, without any blaming, but with an idea that you're going to broaden your horizons about everything. And I think a narrative approach it would be a good way to to achieve that. And what do you mean by that? I mean, 
in the workshops, we get people to talk about their experiences. So we would direct the conversation to say, um, how did you learn to like your body? Or did you ever learn to like your body? Mm-hmm. What 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 was that process? What is that process like? Mm-hmm. Um, what's your experience of learning to eat and what's acceptable to eat and what's not acceptable to eat? Are there any um, learned behaviours that you've got that you haven't thought about? Because that self-reflection needs to be done by the carers, and I have to say this, that sometimes counsellors look like they've got eating disorders and they have to have self-reflection about what image they're portraying to their client Um, because that's what we want the client to have is that ability to Mm self-reflect. So that's one idea, you know, that idea of creating a narrative or thinking through, you know, well, how have I come to be in this position, you know, what are what are all the parts of the jigsaw that have led me to think of my body in this way or communicate my emotions in this way? And what what other things when we were talking earlier, you mentioned the idea of the person having and um, doing little experiments mm. on trying to think about something from a different perspective. And mm. um, do you have thoughts on that? Well, I was thinking, for instance, um, we found out in the workshops, the research that some of the PhDs did, that high expressed emotion in families makes it much more difficult to talk and to develop and to manage your anxieties. Mm -hmm. So you might say to someone, let's talk about expressed emotion. Let's talk about when you feel emotionally out of control and what does when it's not happening and let's talk about what options you feel you have when it is happening what happens to you in your body in your head so let's think about and then before you leave the session or if you're talking to your mum what might you do what what tiny thing might you do to um help you to be aware that your emotions are getting out of control. And even before that, I often recommend people to watch things on television, for instance, Mm -hmm. or films, and pick out a little scene where things are are seeming to be out of control and to discuss it so that they're prepared for normal out-of-control emotions, as it were, Mm -hmm. and then when it gets too much, where then everything seems impossible, and um, then you can think, well, what little experiment might you try? So you might literally, and this is an age old thing, you might want to count to 10 before you say anything. Mm-hmm. So as a carer, you might want to hold your tongue for 10 seconds before you say anything back, mm-hmm. for instance. Yeah. But people are very, very creative once you talk to them and they can come up with all sorts of ideas. But little is better than lots yeah just tiny yeah. little things yeah so so as you know i'm a chartered accountant so one of my strategies was i would start reciting the 17 times table in my head no? to stop me just going in to fix my thumb yeah. yeah so but as you say i mean some people count some people breathe some people have like a fidget toy or something don't they some people cuddle a dog um can be anything yeah 
and that focusing on emotions. So, um, you know, when we were talking earlier before this, and um, we were talking about the dad's workshop that I've just been running, and it's it's incredible how the dads, you know, feel that they have permission to talk about really in depth about their own emotions when it's a group of men together. So we all love it, don't we, when when male carers come to the workshops because they think in a different way and they're very solution focused. And so we can kind of calm down, down a bit of their rhino tendencies, but they don't normally express their emotions in those workshops. But when you get a group of male carers together, they really, really do. And they really bond with each other over that. Um, but for me, Jill, one of the big kind of developments, I guess, from when we finished the research, you know, the, the original research, and, and kind of were developing the model, getting it out in the community, was when we introduced much more of the emotion focus strategies. Mm. So especially our lovely technique of ALPS. But, you know, now before the carers even come to my workshops, they send me a registration form which in which I invite them to explore their emotions. Mm. So they've already started to think about that. And some of them will write an essay about, you know, these are the huge emotions I feel. It's such a roller coaster. Um, and often they'll start validating them themselves as well. So you know, they, they, they're they already on that pathway when they start to come to the workshops, which is really, really powerful and really useful. It is. And it's powerful and useful for their loved one because that's something that they haven't learned, is emotional regulation, exactly. yeah. something they're not good at. And if they can't regulate their emotions, it also means they're not able to self-soothe. So what is helping them to self-soothe is not eating, binging and vomiting. Yeah. Yeah that is doing that instead. So we want something to replace that, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We had a lovely um, dad and daughter come to our workshop, um, come to our carer support group. Oh, several years ago, there's a video on my on my website, um, but Meg and Martin was the dad. Um, and one of the most poignant things that came out of that was that, so, so she was ill as an adult and um, she said the most almost memorable moment and quite defining moment in their relationship was when he was able to say, I feel really sad because you can't eat whatever it was. And then he burst into tears. And he and she said his ability to show that vulnerability was mm. so connecting. And then she was able to actually invite him to go to some of her kind of therapeutic sessions together. Mm. So they really and that was because they could both open up about the emotional roller coaster that they were both feeling rather than she said before that and the dad agreed before that everyone would be suppressing their emotions all the time so it's like a pressure cooker and I, and I think the carer skills workshops because there are other carers there do facilitate that sharing of emotions that yeah. I haven't seen in any other situation actually yeah. Um, that's something very unique to being with other carers. Absolutely. And, sh and sharing all the ups and downs of what you're going through. Absolutely. And last yeah. night in a workshop, we started with that exercise, you know, talk about the emotions that you feel caring for a loved one with an eating disorder. And what I always find um, really helpful with that is when we have them all listed and we look at them and everyone realizes that those feelings are the exact same feelings that the person is feeling. Exactly. Absolutely. And they suddenly yeah. realize that they're feeling the same way as their loved one. Mm. And by figuring out how to manage their own feelings, they actually will be helping their loved one yeah. to figure out mm. as well. But yeah. the, the problem with um, 
being a long with a long term ill person is that you get stuck it's very habit forming mm. the behavior around food weight and and not eating or eating or whatever trying to eat and we get we become part of that cycle and we're Absolutely. not get out of it and one of the first things we used to say to carers is you must learn to look after yourself which they hated and got really angry with us but over time we've put that a little bit further down the line as it were and carers we want carers to say yes actually I need to be in a position where I can not tolerate in a non-judgmental way where I can stop giving attention to these behaviors that I don't want and give attention to behaviors that I do want but I need to be calmer more rested, less tired, less stressed to be able to do that. So the take-home message is give attention to behaviours you want. So if you want more eating disorder behaviours, give attention. Lots of attention, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what other ideas or thoughts do you have then about, you know, trying to to break those negative habits or patterns of behaviour? You know, we hear carers talking about them all the time. You know, the the food ones, the preparing the food, the eating, the not eating, they go on and on and on and they feel really trapped. What other um, thoughts do you have on how to break those a bit? If, if you're going to feel trapped, you have to be able to take time out to think about that. I don't think the carers who are in that cycle even think that they're trapped. They just think if I keep doing the same thing over and over again, some one day the penny will drop mm. and the person will stop doing it. They they seem to have lost their ability to self-reflect. Mm-hmm. So somehow what, what I've done, for instance, is take myself into therapy. Mm-hmm. That's one solution or one way of doing yeah. it. Um, but you have to have a menu of options that take your mind away from these repeated circles that you have got into as a carer. So yeah. it, it could be it could be anything. It could be friendships. It could be hobbies. It could be holidays. It could be reading. It could be absolutely anything. I don't want to put words into anybody's mouth, but there's got to be things that are exclusive to you that are not part of the eating disorder. Yeah. And and carers are terrified, aren't they, Jill? When they first come to the workshops, they're terrified that if they change any of these things that have become a habit, things might get much worse. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and it's helping them to tolerate that distress mm-hmm. of thinking, well, you know, I, it's it's going to take a lot of courage for me to even think about making a change. So, you know, I've got rice cakes is always a thing, isn't it, Jill? People get really fixated about rice cakes. Um, I sometimes refer to it as rice cake gate. But if if carers have been really fixated for years and years and years, that the fact that their loved one does find having rice cakes quite soothing, and they see that as an eating sort of behaviour, that that's the only thing. It's like a hook in their head, isn't it? They can't stop thinking about the rice cakes. So one of the strategies that I've found really useful when when I see that, which is not that uncommon with the carers of the adult patients who've been ill for a very long time, is is I say, right, okay, well, let's let's now take a breath. And I want so I'll just say to the carers in the group, so write down 
two things your loved ones ever achieved in their life, nothing to do with the eating disorder. And then write down two things they've achieved at some stage on their eating disorder journey. And it could be something teeny, teeny, tiny, or it could be something major. And then write down three character strengths of which one is probably determination. And then write down um, two things that you know that they aspire to at some point in the future. And again, it could be something really teeny tiny. Um, and then write down a family activity that you could do together tomorrow, like completely non-eating sort of. And it's amazing how that exercise can help reset the mindset of the carers in the group to suddenly think, maybe, you know, maybe there's a lot about my loved one that I haven't really appreciated because I've been so fixated on whether it's the rice cake or the running every day or the, you know, weighing all the food and that sort of thing. So, you know, there's lots of different strategies, aren't there, Jill? I remember when we wrote the training man manual and you said, you know, this is where we've got to, but over the years, people will develop little different exercises. And that's exactly where that one came from, was just like thinking, okay, there's so much more going on here and we've all got fixated on these rice cakes at the moment. And one of the... Um directions in the early motivational interviewing model was this uh, behavior called running with resistance yeah so it's not it's not so popular now because the resistance described like that is always assumed to come from the patient but let let's say it's not the patient it's our yeah. own resistance to change yeah, absolutely so you've got a patient on the ward sitting at the table with a, a kiwi fruit, okay? Um, are they going to eat this kiwi fruit? It's like a rice cake. So we had, we were all sitting around the table too. We had a long discussion about whether this person was having, going to eat this kiwi fruit or not, whether they're going to eat it with the, with the skin on the outside or what they were going mm. to And I got so bored with that. I said, you know, there's a lot more to a kiwi fruit than its skin and its flavour. Where do they come from? How do they grow? What, you know, which countries are they from? Where, where, um, how are they harvested? When do you know a kiwi fruit is ripe? And you could go on like this about a rice cake. How yeah. is a rice cake made? How is it um how did the idea come? Where? How are those rice puffs developed into a cake shape? You know, there's a lot, a lot more to a rice cake than one can imagine. And if we want to talk about a rice cake, we can do it. We can roll with that resistance and we could spend half an hour talking about a rice cake. What that tends to do to people is make them bored. Yeah. And then we can talk about something else. Yeah, um, I'm thinking as well as we're talking about these different strategies, like, again, Harriet, Jill and I would have so many different, wouldn't we? We've got hot, the whole toolkit, which is the new Maudsley model. Um, and there's so many different ways of, of utilising it within with a group of carers. But I always remember, you know, the, the very first series of workshops I did, um, Jill, back in 2010. Mm. And I was terrified. I had 20 families like I had the experience of one boy who was 12 years old and suddenly I was let loose with 20 families in this little centre in the middle of Tunbridge. I mean, I was quivering <laughs> with anxiety. And um, so this was the, the Beat Empowering Families collaboration that we did, do you remember? 
And um, anyway, really lovely group. But but one of the carers was a partner rather than a parent. So all the others were parents. And one, this lovely, lovely guy. And he was quite quiet through the series of workshops. But when we came back for the review and reflect, he said, I really took on board these kind of, you know, the animal metaphors and coming alongside my partner and walking with her rather than trying to do something to her. Um, and he said, you know, I, I, I used to try to be the kangaroo and the rhino and it just didn't ever work. And he said, so so I, I thought about this more nudging dolphin. And so one of her rules was that she wouldn't have dinner before 10 o'clock at night. And then dinner would take two hours and then she'd get up at five in the morning. So 10 till 12 was dinner, go to bed at midnight, get up at five in the morning, do a two hour bike ride or a two hour run and then go to work. And she would be able to do a good day, day at work. But their evenings were traumatic and boring, Jill, going back to the boredom. Yeah. So he tried everything. And so rather than trying to fix the situation. He kind of just, when they were, I think, walking in the park one weekend, he said, I was just wondering, is there any possibility that we could try to have dinner one minute earlier? And she laughed at him in a, in a good way. She laughed and she said, I guess it seems a bit inconsequential. So they started having dinner one minute earlier. So they started to move slowly, slowly, slowly. So he said, when, when we came back for the review session about eight weeks later, he said, well, we're now having dinner at half past, around half past eight. It doesn't have to be exactly half past eight. And what's been so remarkable about this teeny, teeny, tiny change is that if we didn't manage it, rather than having a great big argument because she felt criticized or challenged, we would just have a normal conversation about where did that minute go? Was it because he was late back from work or she was late back from work or something else had happened? Completely normal, unemotional just practical conversation and then start again the next day. So he said, she's so delighted with the success of this experiment. She's now having, she's now reducing her run by one minute a day. So, and then two, two years later, he sends me an email with a picture of their lovely two little babies. Oh, okay. And that started from this teeny, teeny, tiny. So first of all, think about the style of the questioning. Is there any possibility? Yeah. So no, no expectation, just, just a little, is there any possibility no worries if they're not. So kind of that rolling with resistance, but in a slightly different way, Jill, wasn't it? And then that led to her, that that was the start of the wind changing direction for her. Um, and she went on to make a full recovery. So I'm sure she still has some traits that she holds on to, but leading this amazing quality of life. So that's the power of the model, Jill, isn't it? That, you know, there, there it is a, like a huge toolkit that, that carers can take the bits that they feel are going to be possible and work for them. And we call those possibilities experiments. Yeah, behavioural experiments, yeah. You do as an experiment, because an experiment you learn from, whether it goes right or whether it goes exactly. wrong. But you know what else I suddenly heard in that, Jenny, as you told it? Because I've heard you tell it before. Yeah. But it suddenly struck me that what they're doing there is they're taking the intense emotion out of a a. a a nor a, a nor an ordinary question mm. or yep. an ordinary experiment mm -hmm. and they're putting that emotion into something that's into an appropriate area so yeah. you know, maybe they can express upset to each other in a way which makes these kind of ordinary situations less intense because if you think yeah. about how upset people get over you know um the the timing of things or a spontaneous interruption to their routine and that it you know and everybody think god they get so upset about these things it's like the emotion is in the wrong place mm -hmm. um, yeah. and instead of feeling up you know sad about something else 
they get very upset about you know somebody interrupting their meal um it just suddenly struck me as I listened to you that that that's also part of that is that that's what's happening absolutely yeah that's a good um, example of learning to emotionally regulate yeah yeah Yeah. tiny tiny steps yeah and also that he wasn't totally invested in her agreeing Hmm. yeah exactly under huge pressure that oh I have to do this now or I'm going to let him down or yeah there was there was no like there was no he he wasn't directing her he was just being curious I love that expression Jill be curious not furious yeah Mm. Yeah. his curiosity is there a possibility no pressure you know if you want to change the subject that's fine just drip 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 yeah could I um ask you both something I might be putting you on the spot a little bit but um some I've heard from a number of carers recently wanting to hear stories of people who have recovered. And, you know, we're talking about adults. Mm. We're talking about people who maybe have had an eating disorder for a long time. And certainly in those cases, getting better or letting the eating disorder go might look differently to the 14-year-old or the 16-year-old. But, you know... What are your experiences, both of you, of people getting better? And what are the kind of, I mean, it's different for everyone, what motivates them or what is the hook that will do it. But what do you have any positive stories for us? I have loads, Jill. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, yeah, we've got loads, but they're not. I take issue with the word recovery. Yeah, so do I. Yeah. So, so, so I might say to somebody, when you're talking to me about will my daughter recover, you need to explain to me what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Because for, for you, there may be a mismatch between what she's hearing when you say, I want you to recover. Yeah. And what what you're meaning. Yeah. And somehow we've got to unpick those ideas so that recovery is not something that's terribly judgmental because recovery can be a fail or a success, can't it? Yeah. yeah. For some people. And also, Jill, what I always think is that, you know, that we need to move away from the kind of medical, clinical, diagnostic criteria. So, you know, for many adult adult sufferers or patients or whatever we like to call them, they, they've not been in treatment for years and years and years and years and years. So maybe they meet a diagnostic criteria, whether it's, you know, DSM-5 or ICD-10 or whatever it is, um, but that's not relevant for them. So if they're not in medical danger and they're not getting any medical intervention, it's not a medical model, is it? It's it's a person-centered path. I, I always think about pathways and scaffolds. It's like, what what is their pathway going to be like? And it's it's very judgmental to say is someone recovered, mm-hmm. or when will they be recovered, or how do we know that they're recovered? Yeah, it's yeah. a very it's almost like a medical diagnosis, isn't it? The two different things. I'd slightly take issue with you that they might be medically well because I've definitely am thinking of one person now who's not medically well but who's yeah. been ill for probably 35, 40 years. And so the parent does need, if they think that there's a medical risk to this person. Of course, yeah. They do need to be able to contact the GP 
or the care coordinator yeah. or whoever's available um be a bit of a rhino to get yeah. that help or you say firm dolphin yeah. Jill. <laughs> be a firm dolphin yeah on the other hand um it's not necessarily true that these medics are going to do anything exactly yeah you know to expect that so what can the parent do what can the love the carer do to help this person to tolerate the torment that they're in and that is going to be something that's going to be very difficult because this person has got into this habit of behaving like this these habits are very very insidious and they've gone on for a long time and it may be very painful to expect them to change and maybe you've got to ditch the idea that they're going to change and you have got to stop doing what you've always done and help them to stay in that position because you've just repeated and repeated and repeated what you've always done. So at some stage as a parent, you've got to step, take a step back and say, the only person I can change in this circumstance is me. So what can is the one thing I can do differently? Just choose I think one. we're saying the, I think we are saying the same thing, Jill. Yeah. So so I'm thinking of a family where yeah, I mean medical risk for this this um woman is 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 always very high. Um and the family do, you know, absolutely what they can do. And interestingly, um, and so again, this was a family that came to my first series of workshops back in 2010. So so and they're still with me, still they're still in our network, and they're amazing. These these parents are amazing. Um but but one of the brothers for the first time came to one of the male carer sessions a while ago and he said, yeah, I do get frustrated because I, I can see that my mum speaks to my sister like she's a child sometimes. Now, I know because I've got to know this mum really, really well. I know that sometimes she is. She does that. I'm not going to say guilty of that because it's not guilty, is it? But sometimes she gets caught in the trap of speaking to her daughter like a child because she's worried about her safety. But also I know that that mum does everything she can to connect with what we would call the blue balloon side of that person. So going to the art galleries, walking in the park, keeping the connections going. And so I'm not ever saying that a family would ignore the medical risk, but I'm saying sometimes that medical model of what is recovery can be really confusing for that sort of family. So for them, it's so much about the connection between the mum and dad and the daughter. And of course, sometimes they're going to be guilty of going into parent-child mode when they can see that their lovely, gorgeous girl, who's in her 40s, is really, really unwell. And of course, they need to step in then, whether it's kangaroo-like or whether it's rhino-like, but I know that this, these parents have really learned that it's so much about their connection with their gorgeous girl, and they do a lot to, you know, to, to really, really nurture that. Yeah. And there was um, something that, Jill, you said to me earlier, which um, I also think is, is relevant here. Mm. You know, when, when a carer steps back mm. and says, okay, uh, the only person I can change is myself, um, you talked about being able to ask yourself the question, have I done what I can mm. and being okay with that? Mm. Yeah, well, 
that's that's um obviously if you feel that maintaining as a carer that maintaining the status quo is the best you can do then you have to say to yourself i'm doing the best i can do yeah yeah you have to forgive yourself role modeling exactly. role modeling self forgiveness and your son or daughter sees that would help them to forgive themselves for not being a you know for feeling like they're a bad person mm. absolutely so yeah. there's lots of role modeling that has to go, have to go on but it's about you being able to be kind and thoughtful about yourself absolutely helping the person to to do the same thing to forgive themselves they're not all bad they're not all an eating disorder they've got as you say qualities and skills so much yeah experience that's good yeah and there's the unconditional love of, of the parent-child relationship however old the child is um but talking about recovery stories or let's not call them recovery stories let's talk talk about discovery or journeys or whatever so so we had a lovely couple um i love it i love it when i get couples um so natalie she's she's spoken at our carer support group several times and the first time she came with her husband stephen so stephen was and they wouldn't mind me saying who they are um like there's stories on my website and um you know when stephen first came to the workshops she was in a very very bad way he was really struggling they got a daughter a dog he was trying to run a business you know really really complex um and after that first workshop jill he was like why haven't they told me about they why haven't they told me all of this why haven't they helped me understand how complex this is I just thought I could tell her to eat and and she would do that like a naughty girl I could tell her to behave and she would do that and he said I'm so frustrated with myself because if I'd known this a few years ago I would have I would have dealt with this in a very different way anyway roll on the years and Natalie um, contacts me and says can I come and talk at your support group so I'm in so much a better place um she'd been off back so there was South African family background so she'd been off to South Africa to one of the clinics there she'd come back she's now working in a, as a volunteer to help with addiction so that was one of her issues with addiction and they came and spoke as a couple and she calls herself um an anorexia survivor Mm -hmm. That's how she describes her journey. And she speaks so eloquently. So, and she says, yeah, for sure. I've still got some behaviors that you could say, oh, that's an eating sort of behavior. That's an eating sort of behavior. That's an eating sort of behavior. But if you ask me or you ask my husband, we say we're in, we're in a good place. You know, we're leading a really good quality of life. Our, our daughter, who's grown up quite a lot now, is leading a good quality of life. So that's a, that's a that's for me is one of my most poignant kind of a family where an adult patient was really really stuck, and then she comes through and calls herself kind of like an anorexia survivor. Um, we had another young man, um, Michael. Again, he's on my website. Very musical um, young man, and he developed bulimia when he was fifteen. And this was you know back in the early two thousands when people just didn't understand males and eating disorders you know exactly the same time my son had anorexia and so he said his so he didn't look particularly ill at any stage and he said his parents knew about it but they just didn't understand it they didn't know what to do um and so he 
then went on to kind of cycle through anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder over 15 years. And then he found his way out of it, a lot to do with his music um, and is now, you know, married. And But he tells his he tells of his journey, just saying that, that things that helped him to find his pathway. So again, thinking about pathway rather than that was when I had a diagnosis and this is when I don't have a diagnosis. He never formally had a diagnosis, but he definitely had all these cycles of eating disorder that he was living with. But there's lots and lots more stories like that. So it's important for me that we have these adult stories where people have found their way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, finding, yeah, finding your way and making me think of other stories. There's something about the people who manage their eating disorder go, go along that journey and change yeah. is there something about them is they learn or they've got hidden deep inside an ability to make relationships with other people absolutely what are the skills that you need to have relationships because you'll notice that people with eating disorders tend to have very few self relationships relate you know self-soothing yeah. relationships supportive relationships they don't know how to make those relationships and sustain them I remember once in a workshop and it's been said to me many times a dad saying well my daughter's got lots of friends I said you need to look at those friends and see who's making the running who's got the upper hand in those friendships and it tends to be the person with the eating disorder does makes all the effort and gets none of the positives yeah. back again so you've got to help them to and it's exhausting isn't it yeah it's exhausting. it's exhausting for them and it makes them feel bad and so you've got to we've got to help them to understand the to and fro of what's yeah. a positive reciprocal relationship and do you find that that when people do um move on from their eating disorder that um it is through relationships or through being able to to go more out into the world D definitely mm. i mean to, they get the the soothing experience of somebody else liking you for who you are yeah. not your eating disorder and you and you that makes you braver to try other experiments doesn't mm. it it really helps yeah. um nobody who's isolated is able to give up their eating disorder mm -hmm. yeah I'm thinking of June Alexander while you're speaking Jill you know June Alexander yeah she um, was she's the one who um really she she changed the name of her website now and I can't remember what it is because it was June it was a diary healer she was called yeah it. just recently she sent me another name which I'll have to send to you but she's very into this narrative, this writing down of your yeah. story. How have you got got there? How is it? Has it been a cross generational transmission somehow? Is it a learned behaviour? How much body dissatisfaction have I got? Is it genetics? Is it my environment? Is helping to forge my identity that's different my identity is different from just having an eating disorder how important is that mm. but writing stories and I do think yeah. that parents who've been struggling for years with this would do well to write down in little spells how they've coped with some of these things and just yeah. leave, leave them as messages 
around the place. Yeah. So they the conversation may be too difficult, but they say to their son or daughter, well, when I had this sort of difficulty, this is how I tried. You might not agree, but I just want to share that with you. I want to share yeah. with you my life, my challenges, um, because we don't ever have time to speak about that when we're just talking yeah. about food, weight and shape. Yeah. Well, no surprise, Jill, that, that I went in with welly boots when I wrote the book <laughs> about boys get anorexia too, because that's exactly what happened to me was I was traumatised, completely traumatised. So he'd gone back to school. I decided not to go back to the city and I was completely traumatised. And so so for me, it was that writing that was so therapeutic. And then he, you know, I said, how would you feel about sharing this story to help other families? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And all the way through. So so it was really a cathartic process for me. It was like that, you know, Janet Treasure always talks about moving from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And that for me was a really defining moment, was writing it all down and thinking about it and reflecting on it and processing it and accepting that, you know, that these things had happened. Um, and he he was like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. I don't need to read it. But he read it literally the week before it was about to be published. And I found him, so 14 years old, I found him in floods and floods of tears. And I was like, darling, we don't have to publish this book. And he's sobbing. And he's like, we do, we do, because it will help other families. He said, but I'd, I'd, my brain had just blocked a lot of this. He said it's bringing back stuff I just didn't know or didn't remember. But that was a really, really bonding moment. And over the years, so now he's 33. And over the years, every now and then he just he 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 just reflects back on something. And it's a really valuable part of our relationship. But it's also a really valuable skill that he's learned, Jenny, because if you can reflect back on things, then you can think about things from someone else's perspective. Absolutely. Not yeah. That people with eating disorders generally tend to have. Yeah, yeah. No, he he came out of his eating disorder with, you know, I I would always say I want my little boy back, mm. and then I know I'm not, I'm now talking about child rather than adult, but I think I want my little boy back. You know, I want that cheeky little blah blah. And then I realised, no, I don't want that little boy back because that was the little boy that got an eating disorder, yeah. and he came out. So he'd gone into the eating disorder very much as a, a pleaser, and and quite self centred, like you know really really into his football and everything like that he came out of his eating disorder as a challenger but with pots of empathy for people around him so it was again reflecting back on that process it's quite a remarkable process that these youngsters or you know th that these parents that these um people experience on their journey or their pathway with their eating disorder isn't it it is. it is it is remarkable what they can do especially when they're younger because their brains are more flexible and the trouble is that both parent and child child in inverted commas yeah. you know they're both getting old we get more and more rigid don't we so yeah yeah, yeah. to do something to ameliorate that rigidity and think of different ways to do it i i'm a, a you know we're looking at narrative storytelling but they, there must be half a dozen different ways that of course or they could think of that they'd like to do that they wouldn't normally do in terms of sharing thoughts emotions feelings experiences yeah. all that sort of thing yeah so jill could you share do you have any positive stories for us that you could i, I i've got lots but um 
it's not to say there's quite a number of people who keep in touch via Facebook and, and things like that. And I, um, I know that they're not all well, whatever that means, but they're doing things. Mm -hmm. So somebody who desperately, desperately wanted to, um, be a veterinary nurse. Um, but when I was working with her, she was strapped to a bed and was having to be fed baby food. So there seemed like there was no possibility that this person was going to do that. Mm. Well, over time, because we tried to keep her alive, she slowly, slowly was able to be stronger and able to get up and move around. She went and worked just helping in a veterinary surgery. Mm. And now she's a veterinary nurse, but we're talking 20 years plus yeah that person then I'm talking then another person that always springs to mind but makes me quite tearful is someone who lost her brother in a in a terrible um uh road accident I think and her parents had built a shrine to this older brother and she'd always felt sort of second in in place to this lost a per person who everybody loved. And her dad used to religiously come to meetings when I, when I called him. And our last meeting, I said to him, and I'd never dared say this to him, you need to do something about that shrine in your front room. Because while that's there, your daughter's going to be constantly looking at that. And he was a bit shocked that I said that to him. But anyway, we said our goodbyes. And about a year or two later, he came back to me and he said, Jill, I took it down. I really miss him. I'm really sad about that. But on the other hand, she's going out with somebody at my golf club that I've introduced them. They've known each other for years. And... Um, I'm doing things that I never thought I would do. I wanted to be an actor, so I've joined a drama society. And he said, and that's all thanks to you saying that. Mm, yeah. And um, so she's gone ahead. She's had children. She's got well, obviously got married, had children. We, In fact, we went to her wedding, and he was very generous in saying thank you about that. And then... A couple of years later, he passed away. But I can only be glad to say that he fulfilled some of the things he wanted to do. And he was just waiting for a moment to be able to do that. Mm. And she's still around. Mm. Yeah. And carers often say from the workshops, don't they, Jill, that, that, you know, you gave me permission to do so many more things. Like as a family, we were stuck. We always felt like we were in a bath with a great big plug hole and somebody had pulled the plug and we were all sucked into the plug hole. Um, and so often I get, you know, reflections from carers after workshops saying, you've given us permission to have a bit of our life back. And it's so important, isn't it? It's so valuable. But it, it, It's just so life affirming. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I've actually done something I never thought I would do. As a therapist, I feel shocked when they do that. And I feel that it takes, as you mentioned, so much courage, so much effort to to do that. And it, yeah. it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had a carer support group a while ago, I think, oh, about a year ago now, where I asked carers to bring stories to the support group. This was a general open group. 
Um, and it was like, I never thought my loved one would. Yeah, and so many lovely stories, yeah. And then of course there was, um, you know, the one of the carers I was referring to earlier, whose, whose daughter is always going to be ill, unwell. And um, so she put, I never thought my loved one would still be unwell, aged, whatever. Um, but then she said, at the same time, I can also appreciate how charitable and kind and loving and caring and wonderful and, you know, all of these attributes that my daughter has and, and our relationship is so valuable. So we kind of got the both sides of it, yeah. I think it's very important to value the person, not value totally. the yeah. disorder, really. Yeah. And, and we've got a responsibility to move away from blaming them for having an eating disorder yeah. and see that the eating disorder is a way, a language to express emotions that are not able to be expressed in any other way. I think we might leave it there. <laughs> yeah. So Jenny, thank you. And Jill, thank you. Oh, well, lovely to see everybody. It's been an absolute yeah. pleasure having you both. And we hope that everybody has enjoyed listening. Until the next yeah. time. Thank you. Thank you, Harriet. It's, it's wonderful. I'm so honoured to be part of these podcast series. So thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Yeah. Thanks, Jill. Thank you.